You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Revelation chapter 12 is our text uh, for this morning. Does everybody have a, a sheet? The last time we spoke of the first seven verses, and my uh, reasoning here and interpretation of this passage is that it puts Christmas and Easter right together in the salvation history story. John is using images and metaphor to give us an understanding of what the big picture of salvation that has gone on. We may have reached seating capacity. One seat here. And I guess some seats over there if you want to. I don't know where they took all the folding chairs. That helps to have them outside. We can bring them in. So I'm going to read. You've got your study guide there, hopefully. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and the angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had been given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Lord God, we do ask for your help now as we seek, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to understand your word 
in the context that we live in today. For the sake of your glory, in the name of the Son, and through the Spirit, we ask. Amen. Well, in 17 short verses, boy, people standing make me feel very awkward. Uh, uh, We could pull in two wooden chairs. You're okay? Okay. Um, In 17 short verses, you have this meta-narrative, this big picture of salvation that is played out in images and metaphor, every one of which is drawn mainly from Scripture or the culture. John is speaking in symbols. He's speaking in images in order to bring home this. Remember, it's a political epistle. It's a prison epistle. John, by the authorities, has been sent to Patmos. In a way, he writes in code. He writes in a code that's going to be understood by those who are into the Bible. You need the Bible to interpret it, not your imagination. That's the trick. Because when you just let your imagination fly in understanding this text, you come up with all sorts of fantasies. But if you pay attention to what the Word is actually saying and what it is referencing to from the Old Testament, you understand what John is saying to the church. We started out with two great signs. The sign of this woman who's pregnant with a child and the sign of the dragon. And then the third feature of that opening first seven verses applies to the child that is born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who, and then there's a quote, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Psalm 2. This is the one who fulfills the anointed one. The son of David has come. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. That speaks of the cross. That speaks of the ascension. So you have advent and ascension back to back in this description, in this meta narrative. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Who's the woman? Well, the woman in the first instance is Mary, virgin mother of Jesus. The second instance, the daughter of Zion, that image that runs through the Old Testament. And in the third instance, the bride of Christ. And that woman represents all of those different dimensions of commitment to God and to the people of God. She flees into the wilderness, and that wilderness describes the era that we are now in. The church age began with the incarnation. The beginning stretches from the incarnation to the ascension. That last, The last days commenced with Jesus' coming. And remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus describes, I saw Satan falling like lightning. And that war that went on in heaven, where in Genesis 3.15 is also fulfilled in this, that Jesus is, by the victory of the cross, strikes the head of the serpent. 
strikes Satan and the devil is defeated. And so D-Day has happened, but we still wait for V-Day. The victory has not culminated. It's not been completed, but it has already been secured by what Christ has done. So in verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he wasn't strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Now, if we were probably in a normal Bible study, we'd stop here and we'd read Isaiah, and we'd read Ezekiel. I reference those uh, on the sheet. This is what John is drawing from, the defeat of Satan. And in the Old Testament understanding, the defeat of Babylon uses images that are hyperbolic that point to a kind of cosmic victory. And that's the, those are the texts that John is drawing from as he speaks here of the defeat of Satan. Michael, the angel, the archangel, heads this up. Now, if you find it really difficult to comprehend a cosmic battle like this, you ought to be aware that right now, inside your body, mortal combat is taking place. Uh, this um, Over the break, I read Bill Bryson's book, The Body. And he says that, Every day between one and five of our cells turn cancerous. Our immune system captures these renegade cancer cells and kills them. Think of that, Bryson says. A couple of dozen times a week, well over a thousand times a year, you get the most dreaded disease of our age, and each time your body saves you. Now, did you know that Mortal Kombat was going on inside of you as you sit here? You realize that? As I eat oatmeal in the morning, I'm thinking of the fact that my body is fighting cancer. Well, you don't imagine that, and I wouldn't if Bill Bryson hadn't said it. You can't imagine what's going on in your body. Can you imagine what's going on in the cosmos? At least it's something to think about here, by way of analogy. I am not dismissive of the fact that there is a supernatural struggle that goes on. I'm part of a creation, and I'm made in his image, and I've been made in his image and subject to his revelation. And so the imagery that pertains here speaks of something that is hard to put into words of what all that is going on in that cosmic battle between good and evil, between the Lord God who created and subjects that have rebelled. The war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he wasn't strong enough, and the great dragon was hurled down, and the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now this is the hymn 
that responds to this event. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So there has been a victory that has been achieved through the incarnation and the atonement and the ascension, the resurrection and the ascension. But Satan is on the run as a wounded animal. So there is a, a fierceness to the battle that yet wages, even though the victory is assured. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. As I've said before, I, I think it's 28 times that Lamb is referred to representing Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. That's why it is his preferred title for Jesus, the Lamb. And every time it's mentioned, obviously, it is drawing attention to the fact of the Passover Lamb the passion of Christ, the atoning sacrifice, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb. And I think I've said before, too, that again, uh, if we're going to stay with any kind of physical analogy, what the blood does in your system is cleanse your body of toxins. The biology of blood fits with the theology of blood. Because it's the blood of Christ that cleanses our body from all sin, just like physical blood cleanses our body from all toxins. What's phenomenal is to me that that, that analogy works so well, but it is a modern analogy that we know what blood does. And yet, and the ancient writers, when they speak of blood like this, they don't know that blood is actually doing that biologically. But the whole meta-narrative and history of salvation plays into that understanding of what blood represents. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. Notice triumphed is in the past tense. They have triumphed. Now, it's interesting, I, uh, Peter Winner, has, uh, he's written a book on the death of politics, which I read over the break as well, and uh, he wrote a New, New York Times op-ed piece, he writes for the New York Times, Christian doomsayers have lost it, and he writes from a kind of quasi-Christian perspective, he would call himself uh, a Christian, and I have no reason to doubt that. But he would say that Christians have developed a kind of apocalyptic complex, a doomsday attitude toward life. He writes, many Christians have become invested in a dark narrative. They seem to have some kind of psychological craving for, uh, for apocalyptic fear. And he goes on to say, we're not living in Nero's Rome. America is not on the edge of uh, moral panic. Uh, and I would like to, uh, I'd like to agree with him that 
you don't study the book of Revelation in order to cultivate a moral panic. And you don't study the book of Revelation in order to develop a psychological, an apocalyptic psychological fear. In fact, I think it's just the opposite. That when you understand what John is saying, you understand the peace, the shalom that comes from the confidence that this whole historical salvation process is really secure, triumphed over them by the blood of the Lamb, that there is a security there, there's a rest, that in the face of, thanks for singing in the choir, uh, there's over the face of that, there is a real uh, confidence in what God has done. So John is not writing to to stimulate one's dread or one's fear. He is not playing the paranoia. What he is speaking to is in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of being broken within a, uh, a culture that no longer respects or does not uh, accept that there is confidence, there's peace, there's resilience. Uh, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now that too is interesting, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb would speak of all of God and what God has done. And I would suggest to you that God has done the, big, the heavy lifting, uh, the, the, incarna- the creation, incarnation, uh, atoning sacrifice, uh, resurrection, ascension. That's the heavy lifting. Then along with that, we give the word of our witness and of our testimony. And I think that's vitally important. You and I cannot afford to be as silent. Um, I'm not in any way suggesting that you um, be glib or overly verbal about your faith. I do think that our actions and who we are speak louder than our words. But that, too, is part of us. If we claim that we have triumphed over them by the blood of the Lamb, then that should resonate with our spoken word, our acted word, uh, our parenting word, our grandparenting word, whatever, uh, should resonate with that. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens. And you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. And we're going to, in subsequent weeks, explore John's picture of what it means for the devil to come down to you. And the two cities, the city of the New Jerusalem and the city of Babylon, give us a powerful picture of these two cultures that are at war and the future that belongs to those who have triumphed over them by the blood of the Lamb. Meanwhile, the devil is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to a male child. Now, who's the woman who had given birth to a male child? It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. 
It's the people of God. And the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. This image comes right out of the Exodus and the Israelites being spared from the Egyptian Pharaoh so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. God will preserve his people in the wilderness where she would take care, be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time, which describes, and we've talked about this before, those last days. Seven divided in half, indicating that the time will be, uh, the time is limited and the time is uh, under God's care, out of the serpent's reach. And then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river, overtaking to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. So the devil's impact is described as a kind of tsunami, a kind of torrent. I, uh, some years ago, by the way, the, um, the day I was writing uh, in Follow the Lamb, this passage, was uh, the Newtown Massacre of 26 uh, children and adults. And that was on the news as I was writing about the Devil's Torrent. Um, but this speaks more of the normality of what I think the Devil's Torrent means. A typical student begins her day in English class where her professor opens class with a quote from Solomon Rushdie. Literature is where I go to explore the highest and lowest places in human society and in the human spirit where I hope to find not absolute truth but the truth of the tale, of the imagination, of the heart. Her professor lectures the class on the myth of absolute truth, mocks the notion of divine revelation, equates divine revelation in the Bible with the Book of Mormon and the Quran, and argues that the educated mind cannot tolerate dependence on obsolete creeds and truth claims built on thin air. Her next class is Introduction to Psychology, taught by the faculty advisor of the LGBTQ club on campus. Class begins with a discussion on the repressive sexual patterns in society and family. The professor makes it clear that she will not even entertain the notion that marriage between a man and a woman is normative for society. After class, our student heads to her dorm, but to her surprise, she finds her roommate in bed with her boyfriend. So she heads to Starbucks. Over a latte, she reads for class Tom Wolfe's latest Back to Blood. If Wolfe is right, we are far more, far more decadent, a far more decadent culture than she had ever imagined. He describes a world devoid of friendship and even common decency. His characters are oversexed adult adolescents. Later in the day, she meets up with friends and heads to an evening meeting of an on-campus ministry. The speaker's title was Breathing Room. It was a nice talk with some good jokes and stories 
about messy roommates and busy schedules and the need to clean up the clutter in our lives, but it all left her feeling empty. How easy it is for a Christian student on a typical day to be swept away by the devil's torrent. The devil uses it all for an aggressive secular assault on the Christian's faith to a superficial Christian talk. Now, my point with that would be not to keep our people, our kids, our students away from the the secular university. My concern would be that we prepare them for the devil's torrent in the secular university. I want them to go to Alabama, to Auburn, and to a host of other schools, but I pray that they'd come prepared for thinking Christianly about what they are going to face. And it's not just students. It's you in the investment firm. It's you in the law firm. It's you as a parent, as a grandparent, as an elementary school teacher, as an educator. Uh, It's uh, on all levels of education that Christians need to be prepared for the torrent, for the devil's torrent, for that tsunami that comes at us. And my concern would be we're probably not keeping up. Uh, it's funny, I, uh, I have one drowning, almost drowning experience in my life. I was a kid and had dumped, jumped into the pool and I got mixed up between top and bottom. Uh, you'd have to be a kid to, to get mixed up on that, uh, I think. But uh, So I'm swimming to deeper, panicking as I go deeper and deeper. And suddenly, I mean, it, I still sort of remember it vividly. I was just sort of gobbled up. My dad saw me struggling beneath and jumped in and just, I just remember this swish. Um, out of uh, my predicament. Uh, The church faces the devil's torrent. Now, in this particular passage, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. You know what that refers to? It goes back to uh, the Israelites and then their internal dispute where Korah, now it's interesting, Psalm 84 is written by the sons of Korah, and yet it was the Korites who opposed Moses, and they are described as being wiped out in their judgment, but apparently one of their ancestors remained alive and struck a very different life course than that and those ancestors. But the description, Moses says in effect, I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to fight you. If you all die normally, then God wasn't behind me. But if God takes you out, then it's proof that I have the authority of God. And that's what happened. The earth opened up and swallowed the sons of Korah. Well, that's what this reference is to. Uh, John is saying, in effect, 
uh, you know, don't worry. Don't panic. God is in charge. You don't have to prove anything. God will take care of you. Uh, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. One of the things I find so striking in the book of Revelation is it doesn't tell us a lot to do. It doesn't give the church an agenda other than stay faithful, keep worshiping. One point he says, keep your clothes on. Um, as if just the normal practice of following Jesus. Don't panic. This is not feeding apocalyptic fear. Stay true to the word, true to Christ, those who oppose you are defeated by the triumph of the blood of the Lamb and by the testimony of Jesus. So that's John's description in chapter 12 of Christmas and Easter. He converges the advent as uh, together with uh, the ascension and he describes this in terms that come from the Bible. Questions? Thoughts? Comments? Tom? Sort of a technical one, but... Oh, no. It seems like... Oh, no. I'm not a technician. I don't just... Go ahead. (laughs) Satan was thrown down from heaven twice, right after creation and, you know, original sin, and then again much later? No, I think that, uh, again, biblical chronology uh, or our human chronology, wanting sort of times and dates is very different from, I think, the biblical description. Um, Genesis 3.15 lets us know that Satan is going to, Satan is going to wound his heel, Christ's heel, and Christ is going to destroy his head. Um, that's going to be played out now for this whole human history. And I think that's what that begins to describe in Genesis. And then you have, like, Jesus in Luke 10 describing Satan falling like lightning, and yet the cross hasn't taken place yet. That hasn't been accomplished. And yet John is implying here that it's triumph over the blood of the Lamb. So I just, I don't know if I can answer that question technically except to express the fact that Satan has been in defeat and on the run forever. And the casting out of heaven, there's no, um, uh, there's also, you, you, I don't know as if we've been told that that's once and for all that Satan is ever out of heaven. That the power of his accusations continue, this seems to bring it to a climax that now forever he's out and on the run and looking to whom he may destroy. Yeah, Charles. Uh, Doug, would it be fair to say that, that all of Revelation um, is, a, is a heavily allegorical exercise that's really similar in its purpose to what Jesus did 
incognito on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples? And in, in other words, it's 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 an unfolding of the scriptures to try to give the complete sweep of, of all the truth that's behind it. Yeah, I think that's a really good parallel. Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, Luke 24, describes how all the scriptures speak of him. The law and the prophets and the Psalms. And uh, and their comment was, you know, our hearts are burning within us as he does that. Uh, I have the sense that in Luke 24, it's more chapter and verse. <laughs> And I think also in the days uh, leading up to the ascension, the 50 days there, Jesus is breaking down and teaching the apostles the perspective that they ought to have about all that has already transpired and pointed to Christ. Here, John creatively takes that and reworks it, as it were, in the light of, again, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Psalms, and brings that to light, uses all of those images. And again, he's, it's a subversive document. If it falls in the hands of the Romans, they won't understand it. falls in the hands of those who have been instructed in biblical understanding, they will get it. They'll be able to interpret it. I think the easiest interpreters of the book of Revelation were those that lived in the first century. Um, and that's why I don't believe in a rapture uh, where everybody is taken out of the picture in chapter 5 and following, um, and you can't understand anything that's from 5 on uh, until Christ comes again, uh, until after the rapture. Long answer to a good question that made sense right from the beginning. Any other thoughts, comments? So this book is not written to instill fear, but to build confidence. Even as it acknowledges the fact that um, the history that we now experience, especially here in Birmingham, with all of its copacetic peace and material prosperity, may indeed not be our future. And we may increasingly have to adjust to a world that is not as compatible with the meaning of the church and the purpose for which we believe we should live. Again, that's not for the sake of building fear, but preparing for confidence and resilience as the followers of Christ. And that has different implications. Um, and then different questions. Like some Christians have proposed a Benedict option, that the world is so bad, let's, uh, let's build enclaves of Christian testimony and witness um, for family's sake, for parenting, for education, and in a way kind of group ourselves together. I think most of us, especially at the Advent, uh, feel that it is better for us to be in the culture as salt and light and being concerned to develop the integrity and the spirituality 
of following Jesus Christ in the culture because we want to be for the culture. For the culture, even in declaring where the culture is wrong, you're for the culture, for its own sake. With that said, uh, it's so important for us to be intentional about our Christian witness uh, and not complacent or uh, overly assimilated into our culture. I'm more concerned about uh, describing the distinctiveness not as a holier-than-thou or a hyper-righteous, but as a people who humbly claim the mercy of God and for the sake of the larger community are desirous of bearing witness to that. I think all of that's really important, and John moves us in that direction. You know, until I studied the book of Revelation, I thought all evil was ugly. That my mind talked, thought about sin as something that was uh, somewhat hideous in its reality. Well, it is. And evil is ugly, and evil and sin are hideous. But John has a more nuanced perception of evil as both beautiful and ugly. Highly seductive, very attractive very compelling, very much something that would attract us. Um, and I think that that helps me to understand, John helps me to understand the danger of both uh, the beautiful side of evil and the ugly side of evil. But we'll talk more about that in the days ahead. Well, I'll close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for this time together in your word. Please continue to speak to us. We pray that the book of Revelation uh, would uh, solicit from us humility um, and a desire to live into this history as your, uh, as your follower by the mercy of God. Uh, together we praise you. Help us as we go into this week. Uh, to be mindful of your presence and to live uh, by your gospel. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.